Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. James chapter 5. Tonight we are finishing up the book. Lord willing. We learned that, right? Lord willing. <laughs> yeah. Now, you may recall from the introduction to, to this letter, James's letter, that he was well known for his prayer life. He had a nickname. That nickname was Camel Knees. Yeah. And obviously, because he had spent so much time praying on his knees, as one would expect from a book written by someone um, known for prayer, the, the theme comes up repeatedly throughout this letter. So, for example... James chapter 1, verse 5, we came across this right from the beginning. If any of you lacks wisdom, they should do what? That would be prayer, right? Again, another example, Acts chapter 4, verse 2. He said, you desire, but do not have, because you do not ask God. Prayer. Now, at the end of his letter, James exhorts us, once again, in the area of prayer, the prayer of of faith. And so here in chapter 5, we'll be picking up at verse 13, taking it on to the end. James continues to develop the idea of how we are to conduct ourselves with patience as we wait for the Lord's return. How many are waiting for the Lord's return? Yeah. Here is a remarkable truth, church, a remarkable truth as far as I am concerned. True faith exhibited through patience will show up in prayer. Can I say that again? Because you're all taking notes and you're all writing that down. I know. <laughs> True faith exhibited through patience will show up in prayer. In the face of every obstacle, whether sickness or sin, the correct response is prayer. Prayer not only reflects an attitude of genuine faith, it also reveals patient endurance as we rely on God to handle life's struggles in His timing and according to His promises, His, 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 not ours. As such, prayer then becomes an essential attribute of essential faith. The word prayer shows up in this last part of, in this last section of James chapter 5, between verses 13 and 18, seven times James refers to the word prayer and uses that word prayer, revealing, I think, a very important element of a journey into faith that works, which is praying, faith-powered prayers effectively. What James is going to encourage us on tonight, praying faith-powered prayers effectively. You see, the only thing that limits the power of our prayers is faith. Now hear this, I want you to get this. This means that prayer has the ability to do anything that God can do. Let me say that again, okay? Prayer has the ability to do anything that God can do. Since he is the prayer-hearing, prayer-answering, wonder-working God. 
Let's pick it up in verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Don't you like that? In other words, what we gather from that is this. Pray faith power prayers in the good and the bad. Okay, whether you're happy or not, we're praying. James begins by referring to two ends of the spectrum in life. Troublesome problems, cheerful joy. The one refers to having issues such as, and what this trouble here refers to, such as physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. It can include discouragement, doubt, or anxiety, financial, or relational conflicts. Basically, it involves anything that causes trouble in your life. And so the response, James says, right away from the get-go is pray, pray, pray. People usually don't have a hard time turning to God in prayer when, but notice typically not until when. You know what I'm saying, don't you? Their lives are falling apart. When pain increases, when worry overcomes, when events seem to spin completely out of control, God finally gets his call. Meaning prayer, unfortunately, becomes for so many a last option. When I think James is saying, oh, it needs to be the first thing that you do, not the last thing that you do. But James is clear. You know, it, it, it can't be the last option. It can't be that we all of a sudden decide to call on God when we have failed to try to fix the problem on our own and then call out to him. James is clear. Prayer is the solution to the problem. Period. You are not the solution. Prayer is. God is. Everything we do must start there with prayer. This doesn't mean that God immediately ends the problem. I mean, he found that to be true. Yeah. He never promises, never once in Scripture, but it's not a promise. He doesn't promise to do that. But he does promise to provide the strength for patient perseverance. Prayer doesn't express faith in God to deliver us from trials, but through trials. Amen? So when, even when the first catch, we first catch a glimpse of trouble coming our way, it's time to pray. And in the beginning of a problem, it's time to pray. And in the middle of a problem, it's time to pray. And at the end of a problem, when it seems like that situation is beginning to lift, James says, then it's time to praise Woo, oh, yeah. isn't that good? It's time to praise. James sees praise as another form of prayer. Lifting our hearts in worship, thanksgiving, and honor to God for who he is and for, for what he has done and does and will continue to do. Amen? 
This tells us that in all circumstances, good and the bad, the ups and the downs, through darkness or sunshine, the right response is to turn to God in prayer and in praise. In this next verse that we'll be looking at, James instructs us to pray faith power prayers when sick. Look at verse 14 now with me. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The word sick has the basic meaning of being weak or feeble. So it's like an even deeper, more serious situation than what we find up in verse 13 with trouble. Okay? In this verse, the emphasis is more on the person who was weak from physical illness. James prescribes three things for such a person. While the trouble, again, of verse 13 is more of a mental, spiritual, or emotional problem, the responsibility of that person in verse 13, James says, is to pray. Okay? But the responsibility of the person here in verse 14 who is sick physically that person is to call for the leaders of the church to come alongside. This is the first thing that James prescribes for the believer to do with regards to praying. Now, some will say, I was sick and no leader showed up at my church from the church, at my house from the church to pray. And then I would say, did you call them? And you might be thinking, well, that's, that's not a big thing there. Y yes, it is, actually. Because you know what it is revealing? Your humility versus your pride and arrogance. That's why that's a big deal. James says, call them. He says it is the responsibility. He says it is the privilege. He says it is the opportunity. He says it's the command for the sick person to humble theirself and to call for the church leaders to come and pray. But have you noticed, I don't know if you have, I certainly have on this end of, of things in terms of ministry, people today seldom don't call on the leadership of the church first. In fact, some people who are sick don't want anybody to know about it. But I want you to notice what James says here. Please hear this. Please open your heart to it. Those of you who have the tendency of keeping this secret and nobody's supposed to know, as if it was a bad thing, as if nobody else has to deal with sickness or illness. James says it is the responsibility to do so. James says that even our physical illnesses are not private. It's not me saying it. God's word through James. Did you notice? If it was intended to be private, verse 14 would not be in our Bibles. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Not intended to be private, thought of and considered, considered a 
personal matter. We're to give the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters, the opportunity to minister to us in our weakness. Okay? That's what James is saying. Secondly, there is to be a specific response by the elders, the leaders of the church, prayer and anointing. What does it mean to anoint with oil? As you might could imagine, there's a lot of different ideas about what this is involving. In Scripture, we see oil used symbolically when, as an illustration of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Keep that, keep that in mind. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil before they assumed their positions of authority. We also see oil being used in Scripture medicinally. As in the story of the Good Samaritan. Guys, you remember that story found in Luke chapter 10? He ministered to the guy, and part of that, what he did after pouring wine on the wound, he also used oil. We're not told what the oil was, but he used oil as part of the healing process. Therefore, the anointing of oil spoken of by James seems to refer to both the symbolic and the medicinal realms. It speaks of a person saying this, ultimately, I'm looking to the Lord. For healing. Are you with me? Either way, I am looking to the Lord for healing. I'm submitted to His will being done in my life. I believe in His power and in His presence in prayer and medicine. There are two streams of healing, prayer and medicine, but hear me. But it's the same God the one and only true God, amen, who actually is the one who works the healing through whatever means might be available. Now, verse, first part of verse 15, James says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. This is the third pres prescription that James offers for the physically ill was to leave the results up to the Lord. Okay. Praying in the name of the Lord meant praying according to His will. This in turn means accepting His plan and His purpose. This is the prayer of faith. Make that connection, okay? Prayer and faith. James says in the second part of this 15th verse, the Lord will raise them up. Does this mean that every prayer for healing guarantees that God will make the sick person well? Let's make sure we understand that prayer offered here is a prayer offered in faith, okay? Let's remember that. Not only the faith that believes God can heal, but also the faith that expresses absolute confidence in whatever God chooses to do. Amen? A true prayer of faith will acknowledge God's sovereignty in His answer to 
the prayer. God may or may not answer our prayer for healing. He is not obligated and he doesn't promise that every time somebody prays, although some think so. We have ample proof in God's word where he didn't always heal. Paul's request, for example, three times God said, mm. <laughs> basically God was saying, I'm not going to do that because I have a greater purpose. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, we're told that the apostle Paul left a co-worker, his name was Trophimus, behind because it says in that scripture he was too sick to travel. Now, if anyone could pray a prayer of faith and execute some healing, I would think it would be the Apostle Paul. What do you think? But he's left behind this Trophimus, sick. When our prayers are offered in faith, we recognize God's will is supreme, and we will therefore pray, hopefully like Jesus prayed. Not my will, but your will be done. Amen? It's a sad thing, I think, to find Christians hesitating to pray because God might not heal the way that they want him to. Trusting God only as long as he cooperates with our plans is not trust at all, church. Amen? Because believers are to have an eternal viewpoint, we can claim the absolute certainty of this promise God can and he will heal. Now, I, early on in my uh, Christian life, as a young adult, young in the Lord, I used to think that that kind of thinking, you know, that God if he doesn't heal you here, he'll heal you in eternity, was a cop-out. I used to kind of think that. But then I realized that, you know what, we were made for eternity. Amen? And, and this isn't our home. We're just passing through. And so we can because we are people of eternity. And because we serve an eternal God can claim that promise with absolute confidence and certainty because whether or not we are healed here, we can be sure we will be healed there. Revelation. 21 verse 4, once again, you've heard it here multiple times. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. Which basically is saying no more sickness. No more arthritis. <laughs> no more hurting joints. <laughs> Shoulders and hips and knees. <laughs> it's all gone. He says, for the old order of things has passed away. Now notice what else James says in the last part of verse 15. Look at that with me. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Hmm. Wait a minute. 
What's James saying here? Well, he's saying that sometimes sin brings sickness. How can we know this is true? Because after he healed the lame man in John chapter 5, Jesus found him in the temple, and we find in chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus saying this, See, you are well again. But then Jesus says this, Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. How many of you saw that before? <laughs> Implying that his paralysis was the result of a previous sin. How about those mis four mischievous guys in Mark chapter 2 who are tearing a roof apart and lowering their paralyzed buddy down into the room where Jesus is speaking and teaching? You guys remember that? Isn't it interesting how Jesus links sin to the man's paralysis. Do you remember what first Jesus said? He didn't go to talking about and giving words of healing first. He first said, your sins are forgiven. Implying once again, the connection of sin and sickness. Now, does this mean that sin is always the reason for sickness? Well, of course not. No. When asked whether it was his or his or his parents who sinned that made a man blind, you know what Jesus answered? This is found in John chapter 9. He says, neither his or his parents' sin was the reason, wasn't the cause. While sickness can indeed be a, a repercussion of sin or a lifestyle, this doesn't mean that every sickness is the result of an individual sin. That's good news, isn't it? I would still recommend that you try to minimize the sin as much as you can. <laughs> you know, in, in terms of displaying your God, bringing Him honor and glory to a world that needs to see a God that is, that is honored and gloried. Amen. Next, James encourages us to pray faith-powered prayers Interestingly enough, when confessing sin. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 16, first part of verse 16, James says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. It doesn't say confess your sins to God. It says that confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Whew. James, what are you doing to me here, right? We might be thinking. Far too many believers have the idea that if, that if there is any unconfessed sin in their lives, that God will not hear their prayer. I have good news for us today. For those who understand that Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future, regarding his work on the cross, he doesn't say, come back after you have confessed and then we'll talk. It's not what he says. Are you thankful for that? You know what he says instead? Of course you do. He says it is finished. 
and I'm listening. Wow. Because God hears the prayers of repentant people and forgives sin, James says Christians should confess their sins to one another. And pray for one another. Hang with me now. We're going to take a few minutes to develop this, okay? I want you to notice the link between the link with the previous verse. James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. He, in other words, he shifts from the third person, anyone who is sick, to the second person, your sins. This 16th verse helps us understand this whole passage regarding sickness and its relationship to sin. James is saying, in effect, there are those who are among you who are sick because of sin. But there are some of you right now, before sickness begins to set in, who need to take care of this matter right now. So confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. At this point, we might refer to a similar situation in which sin in the church led to God's discipline of sickness and weakness and even death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, unconfessed sin in other words. He says in verse 30, that is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. And we know what that means, right? Not like what some of you are doing right now, but actual dying, okay? Selves confessed sin, we would not come under judgment. The repercussion of sin. This reality of sin that leads to sickness and even death stands behind James's exhortation here. Confess your sins to one another. What kind of confession is this? Well, James is not talking about our original confession of faith for salvation. He's not even referring to confession of offenses before God, although that would be necessary, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's not urging confession to a priest in some little small booth tucked away somewhere. The context of James's message suggests making amends with those whom you have wronged and forgiving those who have wronged you. That's what he's talking about. And we've seen this throughout this letter, haven't we? In various ways and in forms. There are some in the body of Christ today who are sick, deep within. Their soul is plagued by a gnawing bitterness or guilt. If these thoughts are allowed to fester without clearing them out through confession and prayer, they'll consume you. They'll eventually work their way out in the form of, an, of unhealthy habits, chronic depression, unmanageable stress, underlying anger, and even physical illness. But it doesn't have to be that way, does it, church? When believers in Christ confess 
their sins, to those they've wronged, their guilt will be healed. When they pray for those who have harmed them, their bitterness will be cured. I like that. Cutting off at the pass, if you will, the damage that could be done if allowed to continue. Do you care about your brother and sister enough? Are you humble enough to be on the receiving end of prayer? This is what James is saying. And guess what? When you have released the burdens of guilt and bitterness through confession and prayer, the garbage that has contaminated and diseased your inner life will be cleared away. Is that good news? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And at that point, and I love this too, at that point, you'll have a greater ability to pray more effectively. And that leads us to the second part of verse 16, which describes the fourth area of prayer for the believer, which is pray faith-powered righteous prayers for knowing God's will. Let's pick it up at the second part of verse 16. It says, The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Okay. Some of you are thinking, well, that knocks me out. <laughs> I'm not, I'm no Elijah. And I'm certainly not a very righteous person. And I'm not a powerful and effective prayer. Well, guess what? I, everything within me wants to say, in and of himself, neither was Elijah. <laughs> okay? The word translated righteous refers to being right with God and right with people. James has already told us if we confess our sins to the Lord and to one another, it brings cleansing. The apostle John agrees. He writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, right, of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, which then obviously then ushers in righteousness. The Apostle Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become, you know it, the righteousness of God. In Christ we are what? Righteous. Some may think praying powerfully is one is only possible for for the spiritual giants in the land. Some may think, I, I could never pray and see somebody healed. I could never pray and see a miracle happen in my life. To dispel that kind of thinking, to dispel that idea, James introduces an Old Testament guy named Elijah, whom he introduces him by saying he's just like us. Don't you like that? Well, what does that mean? What are you like? 
Elijah had a nature like ours. Sinful. Fearful. Inconsistent. Imperfect. But forgiven. I heard someone mouth amen over here, or I saw, I didn't really hear. But for, I'm going to give you another opportunity, okay? But forgiven. Amen. <laughs> Loved by God and equipped with gifts from above. Elijah, you guys know the story. Elijah comes on the scene and he prays. It's a thing of judgment, right, from God, and he prays. No rain, God. And it doesn't rain. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 17, it doesn't give us a time value. It just said it didn't rain for a while. <laughs> Both Jesus and James give us three and a half years, okay? In case you didn't know that. And so he prays, no rain. He prays again, rain. And then there was the whole Mount Carmel event, right? When Elijah prayed down fire from heaven. One of the greatest prayers found in the Bible. Yeah. Prays fire down from heaven, beats up on the 450 prophets of Baal, but then what does Elijah do when he hears that Queen Jezebel is looking for him? He turns tail, runs, and hides. He flees into the desert goes into deep, deep depression. I emphasize that because of what his next prayer is. When you look at that, he prays to God. But you know what he prays? How many remember? He prays that God take his life. I consider that deep, deep depression. How about you? Yeah. So we see Elijah demonstrating again fear, depression, Worry, lack of faith. Can anybody here relate to any of those in your own life? Now you know why James writes, he was someone just like us. Are you encouraged by that? Yeah. I hope you are. Yeah. Yeah. What's this telling us? Prayer is not for the perfect, but for the imperfect. That's another thing to be excited and thankful for, isn't it? You don't need to be a prophet or an apostle to pray effectively. More good news. <laughs> you don't need to wait to be perfect before God will hear your prayers. Cleansing from sin comes through prayer. Wisdom comes through prayer. Specific needs are met through prayer. Yes, the prayer of a righteous man produces much fruit, but you don't need to be sinless to pray. If that were true, none of us would be able to pray. None of us would be heard by God. Amen? But here's the question. Are you praying faith-powered prayers? Verse 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way 
will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, please notice by James saying one of you, he's referring, that lets us know that he's referring to a believer who has fallen away from the faith, somehow becoming, once again, we're assuming, a, a becoming involved with, the, with a fallen world in an unhealthy manner. What causes a person to drift and wander? Lots of things, obviously, but at the bottom of all, that would be this, because the heart, at the heart of every problem, at the heart of every problem is a problem with the heart. Amen? When someone does wander, the brothers and sisters, James says, are to bring the person back. Not for judgment. Please know that. Not for judgment, but for repentance and for restoration. James assures us that if we succeed at our rescue mission, our rescue operation, through patience, humility, gentleness, and perseverance, we will have restored the person back to the right path, back to walking with Jesus once again. He then describes the good and encouraging results of this restoration. He says, first, when we turn a wandering Christian from the error of their way, we will save them from death. What he writes. Given the Jewish Christian background of this letter, it seems most likely that death here, in its context, refers to the way of death. A dark, death-like death -like existence. Secondly, when we turn a wandering Christian from the error of their way, we will cover over a multitude of sins. This has a double application. Not only does a person's confession of sin bring forgiveness for the wayward path that he or she has taken, but it also prevents that person from continuing farther along in that dead-end path of sin and death but also saving that person from accumulating more sin and making a greater mess of their lives. The damage that the rebellious Christians' personal lives, personal sins have done is saying at this point can be covered when there has been repentance in the process. I appreciate that James ends his letter with an exhortation to watch out for wayward saints. This is important that we understand this. And you know, I know that uh, we live in a society is that kind of like wears this badge, mind your own business. It's not your business. Stay out of my life, whatever. In the family of God, when one is wandering, their family it is our business to seek after them, to save them and rescue them from further destruction and damage. So I appreciate that James takes us there. His entire book has been a plea to make sure that outward actions accompany inward convictions, that our words match 
our deeds and that real faith produces genuine works of stability and love and humility and patience. Now I will admit, I would be the first to admit that one of the least pleasant aspects of ministry is confronting those who have strayed. Sometimes it's just not fun. <laughs> it's not easy. And obviously, it's not always received well. <laughs> Sometimes it leads to misunderstanding when the heart is unrepentant and not ready to be changed by God. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. May not be easy. May not be pleasant. It may not be received well. But it is biblical. Amen? It is biblical. It is necessary. And when the Spirit does work repentance in the person's heart, it can be a great blessing to both the one who corrects, the one who rescues, and the one who has been rescued, corrected. So what began with the challenge to endure hardship back in chapter 1 with joy now closes with an appeal to watch out for each other. Believers are to pursue their faith together. Not a Lone Ranger deal, amen? We are to do this together. I love that. It is God who saves and keeps, but He wants us to be involved in one another's Christian life. In closing his letter, simply with a and, and, and let me say this, it's, diff, it's, a, it's a different closing than most New Testament letters. It's totally different. But in closing his letter simply with a practical pointed exhortation, it is as though James is saying to us tonight, I've given to you the word of the Lord. Now go and do it. Go and do it. And do it. Are you good for that? Father, we come before you this evening and we want to say thank you for allowing us the privilege of taking a journey through the book of James. I am praying that its truth will continue to impact us in the days ahead. It will continue to land in our hearts Holy Spirit may you continue to bring reminders of things that James has said that which he has taught bring them to our heart bring them to our mind and may we respond accordingly in obedience in faithfulness loving you more than this world loving our brothers and sisters in a way Lord that pleases you as we grow in our faith together 
as we experience the ups and downs together. As we experience victory together. Serving you together. May we not lose sight of that, God, for the rest of our days. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up my heart.